Let's, uh, as we continue our worship by opening God's word, let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking his blessing upon our time. Our Father, we do come and ask for your mercy, for your help, for your grace that is, has been lavished upon us, that you would bless us now as we open up your word, as we come with hearts desiring to learn more about who you are and what you have for us. Father, would you not only instruct our minds, but may you train our hearts. Would you help us to not only be changed in terms of what we think, but in our affections. Draw us, Lord, in greater love for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those of us that know the truth of the gospel, we know how the gospel acts as a lens in which it, in one sense, flips everything upside down. You know where you've looked uh, through a magnifying glass or something and it turns everything backwards and uh, the gospel in some sense is like that. We look at our world through the lens of the gospel and everything seems to be flipped on its head, at least initially. Before we knew Christ, we valued the things of this world. The things at the top of our list were, were status and fame, money and fleshly pleasure. But now through the gospel, that's flipped on its head. Those things lose their value and now we see the futility of those pursuits. Or before Christ, it was our supreme desire and our mission to try to please people to please the people in our lives, family, friends. If they weren't happy, then we were distressed. But after Christ, we recognize our greater desire is to please the Lord. Now, we don't do it perfectly all the time, but we realize that's our higher aim that we shoot for. Before Christ, we live for the here and now. What can we attain now? What can we, how can we please ourselves with, right, with, with what is right in front of us? But after Christ comes into our life, we realize that the here and now, this earth is not all that there is and that we live for eternity, that there is a forever that we are living for. And this whole idea of the upside down perspective, we get directly from Jesus himself. You'll remember that as we've gone through the book of Luke, we've heard things from him, such as in order to gain our lives, what do we have to do? We've got to lose them. Or in order to be great, we need to be a slave of all. He taught that in order to be rich, we must give away our money. Jesus was constantly flipping things around for his disciples. But it's this very perspective, this reality that things can be not as they appear. And the reality that through the lens of the gospel, we see something more truly that enables us to look at Christ's suffering and his crucifixion and see what observers in the first century missed, what they couldn't see. They saw a man being beaten and bruised, but we can see a glorious king. They saw a man helpless in the face of his enemies. We can see God powerfully conquering his enemies through the cross. They saw a man worthy of pity and, in some cases, mockery. 
we can see the God-man worthy of our worship. And so I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. The Gospel of Luke chapter 23, if you're not there already. Again, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke and we come now, we've been in the Passion Week, the final week of our Lord and in this case, the final hours. Jesus is just a, a few hours away from the cross as we find him in the text here. You could say even a few minutes away from the cross. And last week, we looked at his Jewish trial. He was, the Jewish leaders were putting him on trial after he was arrested. And it was really a kangaroo court. The verdict had already been reached. It had been determined before the trial even began. Because you see, the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they already had determined that they wanted Jesus, Jesus killed. They wanted him killed for months, even years previous to this, and now they had him arrested. They had him bound and under their power. And as we saw through their questioning, in which they were trying to trap him in his words, his true identity was revealed. If they had eyes to see and if they had ears to hear, which they didn't. He declared himself to be the true Messiah, the Son of Man and the Son of God. And yet, in their unbelief, Jesus, according to them, had committed blasphemy. By stating what was true, in their eyes and according to their standards, he had committed blasphemy and therefore was worthy of death. And so, with their newly minted verdict, they march off to Pilate with Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. And so I invite you to follow along as I read in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is the Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the, the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at this time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraign him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless it upon all of us this morning. Now, as I said earlier, on the surface, this passage seems to show Jesus as a poor, helpless man. A prisoner who's merely at the whims of his enemies. 
But when we look closer, we see a king who is worthy of our worship. And so from this text, we're going to see simply three reasons we can adore Jesus as our king. Three reasons we can adore Jesus as our king from this passage. And first of all, we can adore Jesus because, number one, he was the rightful king. He is the rightful king. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. No one on that day there in this courtroom scene recognized Jesus as the true king, but we must not miss it like they did. Now, verse 1 picks up the narrative, continuing on from where 22 left off, and it says, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. The whole company talks about the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council of about 70 men, and they arose and brought Jesus to Pilate. They wanted Jesus killed. And according to their warped judgment, they believe he, he was found guilty and worthy of execution. But they have a problem. Roman law did not allow the subjected peoples in their various lands across the empire to be able to put uh, prisoners to death. The, the peoples there in those lands could not carry out capital punishment. They if they did so, then there would be chaos. Things would get out of hand. And so that was reserved for the Romans in, across their empire. And so the, the people here in Israel needed the, to get the Romans on board in order to convict Jesus, in order to have him executed. And so the Jewish leaders took them, Jesus over to Pilate in order to convince him to execute Jesus. Now, let's talk about Pilate for a moment, Pontius Pilate. He was the prefect or the governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. Now, his headquarters, while he was there governing Judea, was in Caesarea over by the ocean, but he was often in Jerusalem since it was the Jewish capital, and so when there were significant things taking place, he would travel there to make sure everything was under control, monitoring the Jews' activities. And particularly during Passover, because this was a particularly time, a nationalistic time, when the Jews gathered together and there was a high fever for uh, seeing deliverance from Rome. Now, there was a time in not too recent past when scholars uh, did not believe in the existence of a man named Pontius Pilate. They disbelieved the gospel narratives. And they said, there's no archaeological evidence. There's no other source that mentions Pontius Pilate. He is merely a figment of the apostles that put him there to try to put the blame on somebody for Jesus' death. However, in 1961, archaeologists uncovered a stone at Caesarea that explicitly mentions Pontius Pilate. I have a picture of that stone that's on display in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And as you can see there, this inscription reads, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, made and dedicated the Tiberium to the divine Augustus. Now this was believed to be a stone that marked the commemoration of a temple uh, in the honor of Emperor Tiberius. We don't know what temple that was, but it's, uh, it's clear here that uh, Pontius Pilate Again, from a, uh, I believe it was found as a, a seat stone there in the amphitheater, and they found that there was an inscription on it, and here it mentions the name of Pontius Pilate. And since then, it has silenced the critics who said that Pontius Pilate didn't exist. 
And I just say as a side note, this is a good illustration. That sometimes uh, scholars will uh, be able to say that we can't trust the biblical narrative because there's not the archaeology to back it up. And I would just say, at one level, it's very possible that we just haven't dug it up yet. Um, there's a lot of stuff under the ground still. There's a lot of stuff that's just been destroyed. We may never dig it up. But the reality is, is our faith is not in the rocks. Our faith is in the Word of God. The rocks and uh, the inscriptions and the papyri and all those things can help confirm our faith. And we realize, yes, this did take place in time and history. And there is mountains of evidence to back that up. But we need not allow the opinion of scholars who are looking merely for external evidence. We can trust what the Word of God says. And this is just one example of that. Now, as the gospel records make clear, Pilate was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to keep the peace. And most scholars believe that he would have occupied the residence that formerly belonged to Herod the Great. And there has been archaeological um, evidence of this. And I have a few pictures for you that are from a, uh, a constructed model. So these are, this is a miniature model of what it may have looked like based upon the archaeological evidence. And so you can see that whole kind of fenced-in rectangular area as a part of this former palace of Herod the Great and then would have been occupied by the Roman governor, in this case, Pontius Pilate. So this is uh, one view upon it. There's another view uh, from looking across that courtyard between those two buildings. And uh, in the distance to the upper right hand of the corner is the temple. So you can kind of see you're on the west side of the city looking over to the temple. And then you go to the third picture and... This is looking from the south to the north, and Pilate's headquarters were there on the left, and then the temple over on the right across the city. And so there in the Pilate's headquarters was where the leader, the Jewish leaders, took Jesus at this early hour. They took him from the high priest's house or wherever they constructed that final Sanhedrin meeting and brought him to Pilate's palace, the praetorium, his headquarters. Now, Pilate had a custom that he would deal with civic issues, issues with the people and the city um, right after sunrise, early in the morning. And so the Sanhedrin knew that they needed to catch Pilate here early and they could get a decision early in order to be able to move things along. And so they all rise and take him over there, as verse 1 says. And so when they gained an audience with Pilate, it says, verse 2, that it began to accuse him. And specifically, they give three charges, three specific charges here for why they believe that Jesus is a problem. I believe that the first charge is more of an umbrella accusation, and the second and third charges are more specific examples of the first. And so let's look at those. The first is, it says, verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. That's the first charge, misleading our nation. They believe that Jesus was steering them down the wrong path. He was deceiving them. He was distorting them. Uh, and so here they make it clear that they believe they were leading Israel in the right way. And Jesus' teaching, Jesus' instruction was going in the wrong direction. Jesus called the nation to go one way, and they considered that a diversion. Of course, the exact opposite was true, wasn't it? 
The chief priests and the scribes have been misleading Israel for years, taking them away from the living God, taking them away from worshiping the Lord and the truth. Jesus, rather, came to show that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that he offered the true way to the Father. If you want to know the Father, you got to know me, he said. Meanwhile, he pointed out to the Pharisees and said that they were children of their father, the devil, that they practiced lies. So you can't get a more stark contrast. You've got truth and lies. And yet they were saying it's the exact opposite. Jesus was misleading. And again, I believe this is more of a umbrella term. How was he misleading? Well, they give two examples of that. The second, you'll look and says, and he was forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Tribute meaning taxes. And so they're before the Roman governor, they're saying, listen, this man taught us not to pay taxes. They're trying to, they're trying to perk up Pilate's ears. They're trying to sweeten the deal to get Pilate in on this. Saying that Jesus taught the Jews not to pay taxes to Caesar. This charge, though, is a blatant lie. Absolute blatant lie. Just a few days prior, they had asked Jesus directly, you remember, should we pay taxes to Caesar? This is Jesus' enemies that gone to him and tried to trap him in, in a lie in, in Luke 20, verse 20 and, and following. Should we give taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, do you have a denarius? And they go, oh yeah. Fish out of their pocket and they give it to him. And he says, whose image is on that? They say, well, it's Caesar's image. And he says, well, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And with that, he silenced them because he didn't give them a direct answer. He didn't fall into the trap. He threaded the needle. And so they walked away silent, not able to answer. And yet here, they twist Jesus' words and, and just put a blatant false charge upon him saying that he taught, he's teaching us not to pay taxes, seeing if Pilate will bite. And so now they're standing before Pilate. They need some, like, some charges that the Romans would even care about because the Romans don't care about blasphemy. They don't care that Jesus uh, claims to be the Son of God and they think that's blasphemous because that doesn't really stand with them. Okay, that's great. That's with your law. You guys got your own religious disputes. But taxes, that's a bigger deal for the Romans. This would cause Pilate's ears to perk up because all Roman subjects were required to pay their taxes and governors like Pilate were there to enforce these collections. But there's a third charge, and this seems to be the one that Pilate really bites on and really cares about. And that is, thirdly, he's saying, verse 2, that he himself is Christ, a king. He himself is Christ, the king. They finally pull out the messianic claim. Christ, Christos, meaning anointed one. And because he claimed to be the Messiah, he was claiming to be the son of David that had been prophesied from of old, to sit upon David's throne and to raise up the fallen Davidic dynasty. He was the true Davidic king. And every Jew knew that, that the Messiah would be a king. And these, these men know their Old Testament prophecy. For example, listen to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. There it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is why they said, they made this claim here, that he was declaring himself to be the king. Because they knew that if he was claimed to be the Messiah, the, the, the one who inherited the Davidic promises, then he would reign as king. And Rome didn't, don't, doesn't like self-proclaimed kings. They don't want them rising up and leading their people in their own lands to serve their nationalistic king. They want all their people in all these lands to serve the emperor. And so, the Jewish leadership here was charging Jesus with sedition. They're saying, Pilate, listen, this man is leading us all away from Rome and going to cause a revolt, going to cause a rebellion. Of course, we know that this was untrue. Jesus taught submission to Rome. He never told them to disobey Rome, to fight back. He never encouraged rebellion or violent revolt. But Pilate picks up on this charge and asks Jesus a follow-up question in verse 3. Look at it with me. It says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers somewhat evasively but affirmatively, You have said so. You have said so. Jesus, in a sense, highlights the fact that Pilate uh, states the truth himself. You know, because think about this. Pilate could have asked the question in this way. He could have said, do you claim to be a king? Or do you claim to be the king of the Jews? Putting it on him and almost showing like, listen, I don't believe this, but do you claim this? But he doesn't ask that, does he? He says, are you the king of the Jews? There's a sense in which he almost assumes the affirmative for the sake of the question, and Jesus picks up on that. You have said so. Those words in your mouth that I'm the king of the Jews, you've stated it yourself. Now, in what way was Jesus king of the Jews? Well, he was not a king like Rome would have interpreted one or like Pilate may have been thinking because as he confessed to Pilate in John chapter 18, he says, listen, my kingdom is not from this world. It's not from this world system. If my kingdom was like all the other worldly kingdoms, my followers would have been fighting right now. But it's clear that we're not fighting and uh, it's because our kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom will come from heaven. And so Pilate didn't need to worry that Jesus was going to incite some violence. He makes that very clear. But Jesus was the right one to hold the title of king of the Jews. Again, as I shared, this was the right title from the Old Testament, understood from the Old Testament. The Messiah would be a new David who would reign over Israel and bring justice to the world. And so, you'll remember in Luke chapter 1 when the angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and told her about the son who would be born to her. This is what he said. He said, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Or you'll remember the wise men, they show up in Israel after traveling from the Orient and they come and they go before King Herod and they say, where's the one born king of the Jews? They've been studying their Old Testament too. They know that the Messiah would be the king. Jesus came 
as the rightful king to reign over Israel. He is the one that God had chosen to reign on the throne of David. But if we go to Israel now, and we go to Jerusalem today, will we find Jesus sitting on the throne over the house of Jacob? No. Why is that? Well, because as John chapter 1 verse 11 says, he came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. They rejected their king. That is what we're witnessing here in the gospel of Luke is this rejection of Christ. Even though he is the rightful king, he is not currently reigning over the house of Jacob as the angel Gabriel predicted. They still don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, as the true king. But there will come a day when they will. There will come a day as Zechariah prophesies in which they will look on him whom they have pierced, look on him whom they have crucified, and they will be convicted for their sin, and they will weep for him as they, someone weeps for an only son. And there will be mass repentance among Israel as they embrace Jesus Christ as their king. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now until that day when he returns, he reigns over Israel and over the world and brings lasting peace, we as the church, you and I, live as citizens of that future kingdom. We confess Jesus as Lord. He is our King. He is our Lord. We submit ourselves to Him. We follow His agenda. We, and we long for the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? But we live as king, as citizens of the king now. We give people, we give the world a picture, as it were, of what it looks like to live under King Jesus. That's what our lives are supposed to show. That's what our life together as a church is supposed to show. As one author describes it, we're an embassy of a future kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom. And so we see Jesus here confessing his kingship and we say yes and amen, he is the king. He is the rightful king. And yet as he stands here before Pilate, the Jews speaking horrible things against him and accusing him and, and Pilate, this incredulous Roman leader not really taking him seriously, he's bruised and bloodied. To the world he seems weak and helpless. And yet to us, with the eyes of faith, we see our majestic king. A king who came to give himself for his people. We see a savior who deserves the worship of every living creature upon this earth who has ever existed. This majestic, exalted Lord. And yet here, as he stands before Pilate, we see him humbled and abandoned. And yet, in his humility, Jesus is king. He did not lose his title. After his resurrection, he said that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him. He is deserving, friends, of all of our affection and our devotion. And so I ask you this morning, do you adore Jesus as your king? Does he set the agenda for your life? In prayer, in worship, do you adore him as the king who gave himself for you? 
Is there true worship that rises from your heart as you consider who he is and what he's done for you? Or is it just a formula that you know Jesus did this and so you say these words and you just go forward with it? We can't just see Jesus as our advisor. Something we go through, go to to get some advice on what to do when we're in a pinch. We can't just see Jesus as a genie in a bottle that when we've got trouble and we need something to change, we pray and ask him to do his magic and thanks Jesus and then move on. We can't just see Jesus as the one who comes and just blesses our plans. Whatever we want to do, Jesus comes and blesses us and just succeeds all of our desires, makes all of our desires succeed. No, Jesus is Lord. And we've got to each individually come to grips with what that means for our lives, that we submit ourselves to him. And so we must see him as our Lord and our King, and not just in a dutiful sort of way, begrudging sort of way, but in a joyful adoration sort of way. Because this is a king who demands our worship, but this is a king who has sacrificed himself and set us free so that we could worship. Without his work in our lives, there's no way that we could see him. There's no way that we could worship him and adore him. And so we must see him as the rightful king. That's the first reason we can adore Jesus from this text. But there's a second reason, and that is that he is the innocent king. Not only is he the rightful king, but he is, secondly, the innocent king. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. Luke here condenses the narrative. Some of the other gospel writers expanded out a conversation between him and Pilate, Jesus and Pilate. Um, In fact, John shows that he's talking to the Jewish leaders outside, and then he brings Jesus inside and and interrogates Jesus inside, and goes back outside to the religious leaders. So, Luke here is, is just condensing all of that to get us straight to the point. And after his interrogation, the verse 4 records Jesus, uh, Pilate, rather, his, uh, his, his verdict. Look what it says, verse 4. It says, Then Pilate said to the chief priest and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate was satisfied with Jesus' answers. He did not see Jesus as an insurrectionist, as a revolutionary. This man was not a threat to Rome and had done nothing worthy of death according to Pilate's judgment. And it's here that we begin to see a a resonant theme that is picked up through this passage that we need not miss, and that is Jesus' innocence. Jesus' innocence is a theme throughout this narrative. Time and again, Pilate emphasizes that he sees nothing wrong with Jesus. Look at verses, we've seen verse 4, look at verse 14 and 15. Pilate says, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Three times, the gospel writers record that Pilate makes a designation that Jesus was innocent. He had no guilt. He had nothing deserving of death. And so Luke wants that to stick in our memory. 
He wants us to hear that note on the piano being struck multiple times and have it emblazoned on our memories that Jesus was innocent. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was innocent. There was not a shred of evidence against him. It's not that he was partially guilty. He was 100% innocent. And church, as a followers of Christ, we, this is a truth that we relish in. This is a truth that we rejoice in. Jesus Christ was not just a brave, heroic figure who endured great persecution. But he was that, but he was more than that. He was the perfect lamb of God, sacrificed for us. Under the Mosaic law, you'll remember that in order for a lamb to be brought for sacrifice, it had to be without blemish and without spot. It had to be perfect so that it could please the Lord. And Jesus went to the cross as the Lamb of God for sinners who takes away the sin of the world as John said in John 1, 29. Jesus was without blemish. He was without sin. And the New Testament makes this very clear. We see it throughout the page of the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says that he knew no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22 says that he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says he was tempted yet without sin. And finally, 1 John 3, verse 15 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Friends, the scriptural record could not be clearer that Jesus Christ had no sin to his name, no thought, no inclination, no evil desire to do the wrong thing. He was more innocent than Pilate could even recognize. And so church, we are here today. You are saved and sanctified because we had a sinless Savior. There is no gospel without the sinlessness of Christ. There is no salvation without the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. This is essential for you to be saved from your sin, for you to be set free from your sin, for you to have a place in the family of God. You needed a substitute. You needed a sinless substitute, someone that, that didn't have any sin to their name, and the reality is, is every single human being since Adam and Eve did not fit the bill except one. And that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary, born sinless, lived sinlessly, obeyed the law perfectly, and went to the cross, innocent of all charges of all sin, therefore able to bear the sin upon him, therefore able to save sinners. You see, in the gospel, a great exchange happens. As we trust in Jesus, our sin goes upon him. And there upon the cross, our sin was, was judged and punished as the wrath of God came upon Jesus Christ. But then through faith, miraculously, amazingly, that we, our sin went upon him, but his righteousness comes to us. It is now credited to our account. Not only, if you're thinking in, in accounting terms, not only is the debt brought up to zero, but we need a positive amount in our account. And we need a, a sinless positivity 
And that's where Jesus' sinless record comes to our account. And when God opens the ledger books to see if we can enter into his heaven, we see that his record comes to us. Hallelujah, what a savior, amen? It's credited to our name. We've done nothing. We've simply trusted in Christ. And it comes to us. How amazing. That exchange happened because of the blood, the precious blood of Christ. This is how Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The precious blood of Christ paid for your sins. And so I ask you this morning, believer, do you worship Jesus? Do you adore him for his innocence, for his perfection? Do you adore him as the only one who could ransom you from your sins? We are the guilty ones. He was innocent. We were born in sin. He existed in eternity past with resplendent holiness with his father. We deserve to die for our sins. He deserved exaltation for his majesty. And yet he took our iniquity, our sin, and our transgression upon himself, and he bore it because of his love for us. He bore it to set us free from our sin. And so as we read this text and we see Jesus unjustly accused, it can be difficult. Everything in us cries out to say, no, it shouldn't be this way. He's innocent. He didn't do anything. How can they hurt him in that way? How can they deride him like that? But then we pull back and we see his innocence. The innocent sufferer taking the mockery, taking the punishment, taking the shame for you and for me. And we glory in it. Like a lamb without blemish or spot going to the slaughter, Jesus went to the cross for us. And so we can say, that's right, Pilate, he was innocent. My Savior and my God He had no sin. He was the perfect sacrifice for me. Now, if you're here this morning and if you've never experienced the joy of forgiveness, if you've never had your slate wiped clean, you've never confessed your sin to God, you've never done business with your creator, then I encourage you this morning that Jesus Christ lived and died in the first century so that all sinners can hear of his sacrifice. We can put our faith in him. And the Bible says that if we confess our sin to God, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That record is wiped clean. Not a shred of evidence of our failures, of our sins, of our mess-ups. That All of us carry the burden of guilt. All of us carry the sins that we've committed. And therefore, we all need a savior. We all need our slate wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord, if you've ever gone to him to seek that cleansing by his blood, I encourage you to do that this morning. You can do it from right where you're at. You simply need to call out to the Lord in the quietness of your own heart. Confess that you're a sinner and that you need what Jesus alone has. Now, if you still have questions about what that all means, we'd love to talk to you afterward. Please don't leave today without having a conversation about where you stand spiritually with the Lord. We'd love 
to walk with you and show you how you can go home with that joy of forgiveness today. So we've seen in this text, we can adore Jesus because he's the rightful king. We can adore him because he's the innocent king. But there's a third reason we can adore Jesus, and that is because he's the ridiculed king. He's the ridiculed king. And we see this in verses 6 through 12. Make that 5 through 12. 5 through 12. Verse 4, we saw that Pilate says there's no guilt in Jesus. But then verse 5, the, the religious leaders are like, uh, no, 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 no. Pilate, you don't understand. We didn't get this far for you to kind of brush off our charges. <laughs> um, you don't understand. We really need you to kill this guy. Um, so it says, verse 5, they were urgent. You can hear the volume go up, the pitch go up. And they say, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Uh, they're, they're trying to say, listen, it's been all over this nation. You can't ignore this. Now, at the sound of Galilee, Pilate's ears perk up. And verse 6, he says, he asked whether Jesus indeed was a Galilean, in which it was true, it was confirmed. And, uh, and so he decides to make a change. Now, Galilee, I have a map for you, is the region up in the north part of Israel, the purple part, if you can't read the words, the purple part of, part of that map, up around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this is uh, the region of Galilee that Jesus was, was was, uh, was from. He, Nazareth is up there. His ministry headquarters in Capernaum was there. We know a lot of the ministry around the Sea of Galilee took place up there. But it also happens to be the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas ruled not only Galilee in the purple, but also the salmon color off down to the right over the, across the Jordan River. That was called Perea. And so Herod Antipas ruled both Galilee and Perea. He, it's uh, this Herod Antipas that Pilate then sends Jesus to in verse 7. Herod Antipas is not Herod the Great, the Herod who wanted to kill Jesus at Jesus' birth. This is one of the sons of Herod the Great. And we've met this Herod before. And he's the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. He's the Herod who wanted to see Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 9. And another time, the Pharisees told Jesus that Herod wants to kill you in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. But here, Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee and says, ah, there's another man that can help me here. And so he begins to send Jesus off to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem because of the Passover. And as Pilate sends Jesus off to Herod, it marks the second phase of the Roman trial. Now, we talked last week about how there were three phases of the Jewish trial. Well, now when we're in the Roman trial, there's three phases here as well. There's Pilate now to Herod, and then it's going to go back to Pilate. Pretty simple. So first, we've seen the first phase under Pilate. He sends him now off to Herod. Now, I don't think Pilate is passing the buck, like, oh, sweet, I can get rid of Jesus. I think he's recognizing this is ultimately his decision, but he's, he's wanting some insight, some advice. And so maybe, maybe Herod can help solve this. Herod at the time was staying in the Hasmonean palace in Jerusalem, 
which was to the east near the temple. There's a picture that shows, I showed you already, Pilate's headquarters there, the same picture, but then off in the corner is the, the tower of the Hasmonean palace. And so it just shows they would have taken him from this palace here where Pilate was off over to where Herod was, probably about a 15-minute walk or so, escorted by soldiers going to this uh, new palace. And so now look at verse 8 with me. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod was almost giddy at the sight of Jesus. It says he rejoiced greatly. He was very glad. And he kind of sits up and goes, ooh, I've always wanted to see Jesus. But you'll notice that Herod is not interested in any truth, is he? Herod is interested only in entertainment. It says that he wants to see some sign done by him. He wants to bring in the magician and have the magician perform on demand. Herod does not care about who Jesus is, what he stands for, or the truth in which he teaches. He only wants entertainment. Unfortunately, too many in the American church are after that same pattern of Herod. They don't want truth. As Paul says, they want their ears tickled. They want to hear things that feel good and they're only interested in entertainment. Flashy music, motivational speakers. They only want Jesus as long as he helps them to live their best life now. But they don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about repentance. They don't want to hear about dying to oneself. They don't want the truth about their true condition. And so just like Herod, they're not interested in truth but only in entertainment. Now, Herod tries to get something out of Jesus. He's questioning him, trying to draw out, come on, give me something, Jesus, now that I got you. Verse 9 says, so he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no, excuse me, no answer. He knew Herod was not sincere. He's not going to give in to, to Herod's demands. He's not going to play his game. And so he remained silent. But verse 10 as Jesus doesn't respond, and he, they can realize that the case before Herod is kind of slipping away, it says, verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. They continue to ramp up and press their accusations. They're not going to let this slip. They begin to shout vigorously, heaping on their accusations, hoping that they get ex Jesus executed, executed by brute force. But once Herod realized that he wasn't going to be entertained, he wasn't going to get the show that he wanted, he took a more cynical approach. Look at verse 11. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. They, then they arrayed, in, arrayed, arrayed him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. Notice here in this, the language of the way that the verse is written in verse 11 that Herod takes the lead in this mocking of Jesus. Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt. The verbs are singular. Herod treated with contempt. Herod mocked. Of course, the soldiers joined in, but Herod took the lead. And one of the ways that they mocked, that they treated Jesus with contempt, was they took this bright robe, a splendid robe, royal robe, and they put it on him. Here we see Jesus, who is rightly the king that we've already looked at, here is being mocked for such a claim. As he stands before the worldly leaders, they mock this very reality. Author Philip Ryken 
helps us sense accurately what's going on here when he writes the following. He says, presumably the robes they put on Jesus came from somewhere in Herod's closet, the hand-me-down splendor of a tyrant's wardrobe. Then, once they had dressed him in these clothes, they proceeded to make a royal mockery of his kingly majesty. This was a cruel irony. Jesus should be adorned, not abused. He should be treated with reverence, not contempt. Yet just as the temple guards had mocked him earlier as prophet, so now the Roman soldiers mocked him as king. He was truly the prophet, he was truly king, and yet he's mocked in both cases. Like a bully on the playground, Herod knew that he could ridicule Jesus without consequence. And he, think, he thinks it's without consequence. Of course, we know that ultimately he would have to give an account for those words and for those actions. Now, when he was done playing around with this shameful-looking so-called king, Pilate said, ah, I'm done with him. And he sent him back to Pilate. In this act of sending him back to Pilate, we get a curious verse here in verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. We don't know what their enmity was. We don't know what animosity held between them. But strangely enough, in the midst of their miscarriage of justice, they found a friend and they became united. Now, as Jesus stands here before Herod and his soldiers, he was being mocked. He was being derided. He looked disgraceful. You'd look at him and go, go, this is not a man of majesty. This is not a man of power, of strength, of authority. Look at him. He was the deplorable man who, who seemed to be the lowest of the low. He was despised by the Jewish and Roman leaders. And so it's like Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus' lowliness invoked from the powerful men of that day in Jerusalem abuse and mockery. But for those of us whose eyes have been opened, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we should see in his lowliness a cause for adoration. Because this is how low our Redeemer was brought. This is how low our Savior had to go, and he's going to go further still, as we know. This is just the continuation of the suffering, the continuation of the mockery. But as we see Jesus here, mocked, made fun of, there should be a rising in our hearts that wants to step in and say, no, you don't understand who, who you're dealing with. You've totally missed it. This is the Son of God. This is the pure, perfect, pure and holy one. What are you doing? Stop. 
And then we want to bow on our knees before him. The others may mock. The others may spit. But we must bow in adoration. Because all of that shame and that disgrace and that ridicule that Jesus received was shame and ridicule that we deserved because of our sin. And yet he came to save us and so we praise him. I think of a line from a hymn, a modern hymn, or verse rather, where he says, come adore the king who came to our world to save us. Born to heal our prideful race, crown us with forgiveness. Fall, O oh fall, before the one who in mercy left his throne. Christ the Lord, God's only Son, his glories now we sing. O oh, praise the humble King. Folks, that's what we must do as Christ's people is we must praise the humble king. We must adore him. As the world mocked him, we praise him. We live in a world that continues to mock Jesus. If his name is ever mentioned, it's only as a swear word. And yet we treasure the name of Christ and we worship the name of Christ while he is derided and treated with contempt. But we his people must be those who sing his praise. We must be those who adore him with heart and with mouth. His majesty must be ever before us. Our, our hearts must rise in praise and adoration to him. And folks, this gets, this gets personal. We can gather together on Sundays and we can praise and we can sing. But the question is, is that really the tune of our hearts all week long? The adoration of Christ. With the people who live around you, and the people who know us best are often our family members, do they say that the tune of your life is adoration to Jesus? What our children say, that what bubbles out of our heart and our life as we go in the midst of the errands and we midst of all the things we have on our schedules and everything that's going on in life, that there's a constant melody of our hearts of adoration to Jesus Christ that bubbles up in praise here and there. Of course, much more is caught than taught. And so if they were to follow, do they follow your example? Do you see praise rising from them? We must be a people who adore our king. And we can help each other to do that corporately as we encourage each other to sing to the Lord, to worship him. And even in the midst of our, the things we have going on, we can text, praise the Lord, right? We get a praise report about something. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Maybe it's just putting a little more sincerity into those very statements that we are indeed praising Jesus for who he is and what he's done. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the portrait of Christ in which we see Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Those on that day did not recognize him as such. They thought they had the power over Jesus. And yet we see with the eyes of faith that Jesus indeed is the rightful king. I pray you'd help us as citizens of the king that we would live under his wonderful authority, 
that we would sing of his praise, that we would adore him, not just from our lips, but from our hearts. May your spirit kindle that flame in us, Lord, that our witness might be one of praise. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.